You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Christine Benz. I'm Joe Saul Cihai, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. I was recently interviewing CPA and author Mike Piper about his book, More Than Enough. You see, the clients looking for his advice often have a peculiar problem. Some would say a lucky problem. They have accumulated more than they are ever likely to spend. They have more than enough. They will have to be thoughtful about what they will do with all that excess money. This is clearly not the case for everyone. Many, in fact, woefully underprepare for their spending needs in their later years. What separates these two groups of people? Well, one key Mike and I decided on is that the kind of people who do advanced planning with their CPAs and have contemplated the concept of a safe withdrawal rate are a priori pretty conservative with their money. They're likely to have more than enough. They could probably spend more, but they usually don't. We have talked about safe withdrawal rates often on the show, and we have generally done so with a certain amount of rigidity, 4% or maybe 3.3%, whatever number you choose. As my guests will likely point out today, however, maybe what we really need is a little bit of flexibility. Hey, everybody, nominate, earn, and invest for a Plutus Award. The Plutus Awards are given out to celebrate financial media. And two categories specifically for earn and invest, best financial content audio, as well as for me, Jordan Grummet, my book, Taking Stock, best new personal finance book. Go ahead, check it out. Go to earnandinvest.com slash nominate. Again, that's earnandinvest.com slash nominate to nominate, earn, and invest for a Plutus Award as well as my book, Taking Stock. The categories are pretty self-explanatory. You'll figure it out when you get there, and I appreciate the support. Christine Benz is the director of personal finance at Morningstar and the co-host and creator of the Longview podcast. Her recent article on Morningstar.com is titled, When It Comes to Retirement Spending, Flexibility Pays. Joe Salcija is not only my good friend and collaborator on Earn and Invest, but also the co-creator and co-host of the wildly popular Stacking Benjamins podcast. Christine and Joe, welcome back to Earn and Invest. Christine, we do a lot of talking about the safe withdrawal rate and arguing about it back and forth. Is this actually a little bit academic? I'm wondering if people actually stick to a drawdown strategy in in their real lives when they're not sitting here on financial podcasts. Well, you're so right that it is a little bit of an academic discussion. And one of the key reasons is that when people talk about safe withdrawal rates, they use this convention where they're assuming that you take out X percent in year one of retirement. And then you just inflation adjust that dollar amount throughout your retirement years. And that has the benefit of giving you sort of a paycheck equivalent throughout retirement, a very stable cash flow from the investment portfolio. The big issue is when we look at how retirees actually spend their money, they don't spend in a in a straight line. They don't spend the same real inflation-adjusted amount year in, year out, they actually jump around a little bit. And specifically, they tend to spend 
a lot in relative terms early on in their retirements. And that dovetails with kind of life stage when people are feeling good. There's pent up demand to do things. Uh, They want to travel, maybe want to help their adult children, whatever the case might be. And then we see, and this is some seminal research that uh, my former colleague, David Blanchett, did. We see that spending tend to trail down in sort of the middle to later years of retirement. And then we might see it adjust upward later in life. And that's oftentimes explained by higher healthcare outlays. So the reason why the 4% style spending rule, I think, doesn't fit is that people simply don't spend their money that way. Joe, as Christine was talking about, I mean, there's variability in spending. On the other hand, we often talk about the 4% rule of thumb. Talk to me, Joe, about your feelings about rules of thumbs, especially when it comes to things like safe withdrawal rate. I like the look on your face or people just listening to the audio podcast. If you hear Joe, here's some, here's some kindling. Let's light this fire. Because, well, I think it's ridiculous. I think it, I think it makes so much sense to begin number one with what your goals are and what do you want to do and see if that's achievable versus using some, some, some rule of thumb. And, and second, I think that the rule of thumb sometimes will lead you astray because stuff's going to happen. Like Christine mentioned, things are going to happen during your life. You're going to spend more money early on usually than you think that you would have. And if you, or you have dreams that would allow you to, and if you stick to a rule of thumb, you're going to take away from these wonderful activities that you could have done if you just done more flexible planning. You know, the thing that really hits me about rules of thumb mostly is that um, rules of thumb to me aren't that sticky. Like if I know what my goal is and I know truly what I'm trying to achieve, the planning to reach that goal is super sticky and I'm going to do what it takes. If I'm using the 4% rule or the rule, whatever the rule is, you know, the rule of equities versus bonds, which is ridiculous as well. If I'm using any of these rules, it creates this planning that we can just throw in the trash later. I will say people need some basic heuristic, though, to go on. I mean, I often mentally reference some research that Fidelity did a while back where they asked people pre-retirement how much they thought they could safely spend. And there was a fairly high concentration in the 10% range. So people embarking on retirement thought that they could tap their portfolio to the tune of 10% a year. Yikes, right? People need something. But I will say, you know, coming back to why sort of that fixed real consumption pattern doesn't really fit is that most people should forestall social security claiming if they can, they should delay that. And that necessitates higher withdrawals earlier on. So not only might they want to spend more from their portfolio due to lifestyle considerations, but their income sources are likely to change throughout their retirement years. That the, you know, the new income source, Social Security, might come on later in life and you have, say, five years or even more where you're spending more aggressively from the portfolio and then that spending goes way, way down. And, and and I know, uh, Doc, that you didn't want to get stuck on point number one here, but, but, but Christine, Christine, to your point, I think the individual planning that you do solves that problem completely. Like if you actually look at what I'm trying to achieve and can I do it, it takes, it takes care of that. And, and what's funny is I got an argument about this recently, not an argument, it was a nice discussion with a couple well-meaning people on Twitter about this recently. And, and what was, what, what I will always go back to is, is that I think I think the planning is easier than people think that it is. It's easier. It's more fun than people think it is. And so these these uh, these well-meaning people on Twitter I was talking to kept telling me, no, 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 we are going to chase people away if we talk to them about this big old planning, like it's you know Camp David Summit. We're going to dive into the weeds. It doesn't have to be like that. I think if we pop that balloon first and say, this is the key to success, it's a lot of fun, dive in, you're not going to make that 10% that 10% mistake. Christine, we're going to talk about your article and some flexibility in the planning. But one thing I've noticed just looking at the article is that with flexibility, we actually find that upfront, possibly spending can be a little more aggressive, right? That we're being a little too conservative 
On the other hand, compare that to that data you said about people thinking they could spend 10%. I mean, is the problem we have here that flexibility is going to solve is that we're too conservative or is it we're too liberal to start with as a population? I guess it depends on the individual, but um, generally speaking, when we look at various flexible strategies, if someone is okay with the idea that throughout my retirement, I'm going to look at my portfolio balance each year, ideally, and decide how much is reasonable to, can take, to take out. If, if you're willing to revisit that, that generally allows for a higher starting withdrawal. And so we tested all different sorts of variable withdrawal strategies, but every single one of them came through with a higher starting withdrawal rate. And the key reason is that, um, you know, with a very fixed real spending pattern that you're never going to revisit, you'll never change. Well, of course, you should be pretty conservative going in, right? If that's your plan. But if you're willing to adjust and, you know, look at a year like 2022, for example, if you're willing to take your withdrawals down a little bit in a year when probably nothing in most people's portfolios cooperated, that redounds to the benefit of a higher starting withdrawal and also a higher lifetime withdrawal. So it's not just that you take you can take more to start, but you can take more out of your your total time horizon. And you know, that there, there is a bargain being struck here. I think that's an important point that you'll be consuming more of your portfolio. So you get to take more in good years, you take less in bad years, but you're consuming more of your portfolio over your lifetime. And so the strategy will resonate with people who are consumption minded, who have sort of maybe tight plans, who say, my goal isn't to necessarily leave a big pile of money at the end. My goal is to really maximize my quality of life during my own retirement years. Joe, in the risk of being repetitive, I'm going to ask you the same question. Uh, I was going to say, what does the average Joe do? But since you're a Joe, then maybe you can <laughs> enlighten us. Do you think people are too conservative in general or too liberal when it comes to retirement spending before we get to these flexibility possibilities? Well, I don't uh, uh, I don't know the answer to that. I can only tell you what my my experience was when I was a financial planner. And it was really it was really right down the middle. I had people that 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 were clients that thought that uh, they could spend every last nickel and it wouldn't affect next year. And then I had other people that had saved just this huge amount of money and were never going to spend a dime. They were far too, far, far too conservative. So I think, I think for me, the 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 problem really is much more individual. I haven't seen, I haven't seen Christine. Have you seen the, any numbers on whether people are are mostly too conservative or mostly too liberal? No, I haven't. I will say anecdotally, and it could be kind of the crowd that I move in that are, you know, our Morningstar.com readers and listeners would tend to be a little more affluent. My sense is among that population, among sort of the investor base, there's a lot of underspending going on. In fact, yeah. I can tell I've had so many uh, older folks come up to me after a presentation about a topic like safe withdrawal rates and grab my arm and say, well, I only spend 3% of my portfolio. And these are people like in their 80s mm. who, you know, maybe 3% is it's fine for their standard of living. But my hope is that they're not really um, starving their own quality of life in the interest of, you know, underspending from their portfolios. But anecdotally, I see more of the underspending than the overspending. I love the idea of of, of revisiting it. Of, of revisiting this every year. I mean, you know, the financial plans back when I was a planner uh, would get out, would would become out of date. We'd set up these glide paths, and two things would happen: either something would happen in your life all the time, things come up that you didn't expect, or on the other side, the market performed well differently during that little subset period than it does over long periods of time. And we had to reflect both of those things and readjust what what we were going to do. I think what this speaks to on an efficacy level, on like, what do we do? The more that we can control our fixed expenses and know what those are, so we know what the minimum withdrawal rate is that we need. Like, what is that? You know, like if I'm a business owner, what does it cost every day to turn on the lights? And then beyond that, can I take the trip to Yellowstone? Can we go to, can we go to, you know, uh, uh, on vacations? Can I begin giving more money to charities? Whatever it might be. 
uh, we then add that in later. Yeah, that's why I always say, you know, sort of coming into this, the name of the game is to get really clear on what your expenses will look like and get quite granular. Like, I love the idea of people plotting out, okay, our roof is whatever, 20 years old. We think in five years that'll need to be replaced. We think in seven years we're going to need to buy another car. Like, go year by year and plot it out. And so start with that forecast of spending. And then, you know, to the extent that you can line up those fixed outlays with your non-portfolio income sources, with Social Security, with pension, if you're lucky enough to have one, to the extent that you can address those fixed outlays with non-portfolio sources of income, the more flexible you can be in terms of adjusting your spending up and down, um, I think. I think that's how people should approach it. Christine, in your article, you talk about a number of options when it comes to building this flexibility into your plan, right? Because to say, hey, we should be more flexible is one thing, but most of us want some guidelines of how to build that flexibility in a predictable way into our financial framework. So let's talk about the first one you mentioned this is foregoing inflation adjustment after a losing year. So I'd call this flexibility strategy one. We're in kind of a high inflationary period, or we have been in the last few years. How feasible is this? Well, that's a really good question. This was some research that T. Rowe Price did several years ago, where they pointed to the value of just this simple tweak to a, a, basically a fixed real withdrawal strategy. But if if, uh, your portfolio suffers a loss, so like a year like 2022, where most portfolios had losses, if your portfolio had a loss, the following year, you didn't get your give yourself any sort of inflation adjustment. And what the research found was that oftentimes, um, when stocks in particular declined, that was often a recessionary type environment when inflation wasn't a big deal anyway. This recent uh, issue where we have had uh, rising interest rates causing falling bond prices, falling stock prices um, because of inflation has been a little bit different. And I would would completely agree with you that uh, that would be a tougher pill to swallow. But this strategy, this simple strategy, this not taking inflation adjustment after a losing year does result in a higher starting safe withdrawal rate, pretty steady income flows throughout retirement and also tends to leave a pretty decent balance at the end of a 30-year period, which is kind of the time period that we examined um, in the study. So I think that there's a lot to like about even a very simple adjustment but I would completely agree that um, this time around, it might feel a little uncomfortable to say, well, you know, inflation's up 6% or 8% over the past year, whatever it is, to say you don't get to uh, make any adjustments to your cash flows to account for that. Joe, what do you think the reaction of the stackers, those who listen to the Stacking Benjamin podcast, would think about foregoing uh, an inflation adjustment last year? I, I, uh, I agree with Christine. That would that, that would be tough. But what's cool is is that if you can do it, it it puts you in a very powerful position. Like if if you say, okay, I mean, what a flex it is to go. I'm not going to take this eight percent more that inflation gave me, or nine percent more, whatever the you know whatever number is that we want to use. If I'm able to do that, then I've set my withdrawal rate at a number where I'm likely to have a successful plan. And I like the idea then that we're starting with a high number. Again, you're going to spend more money early on. So, so spending more early, knowing that there's going to be some sacrifice along the way, I think is, 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 is fine. One other point I would make, um, you know, I often think about the Jason Swig column that he wrote uh, a while ago about what he called meflation, basically how each of us have sort of an, a different inflation story based on our consumption basket and Granted, inflation over the past year was pretty widespread throughout all of our lives. But when we look at older adults' consumption patterns, they do spend a little bit differently than the general population. So if we're talking about kind of traditional retirees, they spend more on health care than the general population. They tend to spend a little bit less on gas. 
uh, because they're not commuting to jobs. And so um, that might be one sort of savings that retirees may have been able to find last year if they weren't driving around, even though they had higher home heating costs, most likely, they didn't have uh, or probably didn't feel the full brunt of the gasoline price increases that we saw. I love, Christine, what you're saying, because I I think it speaks again to this idea of tracking your expenses, just so at the end of the year, you can say, what is that? I remember that article and it really fired me up because when when you can say, hey, inflation for the world was eight, but my inflation number was 13, like the eight doesn't matter. The only number that matters is my number. When I know what my number is, we have so much more power, power there. Right. Your inflation is not CPI. And the other wrinkle is your housing. I mean, the the biggest line item in most budgets is housing-related costs, and many older adults own their homes, and of course, they have various housing-related outlays that they're on the hook for, but you know, not having to contend with rents is hugely beneficial in an environment like 2022. This leads me to some conversations that I've that I've had across a table over coffee with with uh, people which is the way that we begin our sentences more planning. If we begin our sentences with I feel or the economy or what's going on in the world, I think that's a mistake. If you can begin with my data shows that I've done X, Y, Z, it is far more powerful in your planning to be able to work from that standpoint than from, well, I think that Congress is going to change this thing, so I should change my plan. Christine, it's an interesting point because I feel like we're walking this line of trying to make some flexibility and adjustments based on these set things that maybe aren't very personal versus looking at our personal situation and adjusting based on that. Let's look at flexibility strategy number two, which is the RMD method. So the RMD method does definitely take into account you and your longevity. Explain what that is exactly. Yeah. So if people are familiar with the required minimum distributions that are um, due on traditional tax deferred accounts, typically IRAs and and company provided 401ks and so forth, there are tables that you have to use to calculate how much your distribution should be. And the, the age has been lifting at which people are subject to these required minimum distributions. It had been 70 and a half for many years, then it moved up to 72, now it's 73. But nonetheless, you can look at these tables and it's a pretty efficient way of calculating withdrawals because it takes into account two two key things. It takes into account your age. And so it lets you take more as you age because of course your life expectancy, your drawdown period is is shrinking. So it takes age into account and it also takes into account your portfolio balance and indirectly how your portfolio performed. And so it's uh, the most efficient method of doing your withdrawals in a flexible way and that it takes those two huge variables into account. The issue, the well, two key issues with, with an RMD style approach. One is that it does kind of jerk you around a little bit, like in a good year, like the period from 2019 through 2021, you're living high on the hog because your balance is growing. But in a bad year like 2022, or actually it would translate into 2023 RMDs because um, you calculate your RMD based on your balance at the previous year end, the retiree using an RMD method would be taking less. And that may just may not feel very livable. And I would say the strategy will tend to be the best fit for someone who has a lot of other non-portfolio income. So I think it's a really nice and simple strategy for someone who has, uh, say, a pension and social security that is meeting a lot of their ongoing cash flow needs and where maybe the portfolio withdrawals are just sort of extra and you're willing to adjust those outlays. It'll be less livable and I think less appropriate for people with tighter budgets who are withdrawing a lot of their living expenses from their portfolios. I was just going to ask, Christine, if, uh, if, if, if this strategy like an RMD then allows you to take more of the balance every year? Is that the... 
Well, it does. Um, it it does because of your age, because your your drawdown period is declining. So yes, you get a little bump up, but you may get a bump down if the portfolio hasn't performed well. So it'll kind of depend. But generally speaking, as your life expectancy is declining, you do get to take a little bit more. Joe, one of the interesting things with the data that Christine looks at in her article is when it comes to the RMD method, actually, you see some higher average withdrawal rates than almost any other flexibility method. We're talking actually into the fives as an average. On the other hand, I feel like we're getting to like Bill Perkins' book, Die With Zero, right? So the RMD method, if you look at it with taking withdrawals from your IRAs, really we're talking about plowing through all that money by the time you would hit, hit your expected date of death. Do you see that as a downside? I mean, if you really follow the RMD strategy to its endpoint, you would pretty much have very little at the end to, for instance, pass on to your to those who would inherit from you. Well, there's only two downsides that, that I see from that perspective. Number one is that uh, you have more life left at the end of the period and, <laughs> and you miscalculate when you're going to die. Like if you're putting the last quarter in the Coke machine and you don't clutch your chest, then you, you, you might be in a world of hurt. Uh, that's number one. The second, the second issue is, is of course, a lot of people have the, have the, uh, the goal that they want to pass money on that they, that they want to leave some type of legacy for organizations or family or whatever it might be people they love. So from that perspective, it doesn't work. The, the, The thing that interests me here is, is, is I feel like, and I can't wait to dive into more, Christine, into these numbers because I find this withdrawal strategy fascinating that uh, it seems like it would work a little bit against your health, though. You know, we talked about early on, you might spend more money. And so an RMD method might preclude you from doing that when really, if you used a different strategy, you could still be okay uh, and, and maybe live a fuller life by doing things when you're healthier. This would ensure that you'd take out more money later in life, it works maybe against your health? Yeah, no, it's 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 a good point. A couple of things I would say. One is that, um, you know, there are different tables and not to go too in the weeds on this, but there are different tables you can use to calculate RMDs. The one that sure. most people use is called the Uniform Lifetime Table. And it effectively kind of spots you 10 years on your own life expectancy. So if you look at those uniform life, if you look at the uniform lifetime table, you'll see that it's pretty generous in terms of the time period that you're drawing down from. So if you're, say, 73, I don't know, it'll probably give you, um, I don't know, I I won't say what it is up because I don't know off the top of my head, but it's pretty generous because it assumes that you have a spouse who is... 10 years younger. So um, the underlying data there, are, I would say, are somewhat generous in terms of life expectancies. And then the other thing that we talked about within our team, and I should credit my colleagues, John Reckenthaler and Jeff Patak, uh, both have worked on this research with, with me. We've talked about um, the RMD strategy specifically. There's nothing saying that, you know, as the years go by and you're sort of getting these raises to account for either uh, good portfolio performance or your declining life expectancy, there's nothing saying that you can't sort of bank the overage that that you have to actually go out and spend it. You could put the money away if, if the bequest was really something that you wanted to target. So it, it doesn't preclude having funds left over at the end. If a retiree is kind of looking at the balances here, she goes along, you could set, set the additional funds aside. We are talking to Christine Benz. She is the Director of Personal Finance at Morningstar and Joe Salcihai, who's a co-creator and co-host of the Stacking Benjamin Show. And we are talking flexible withdrawal strategies. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? 
Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenues, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash earn. That is linkedin.com slash E-A-R-N for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash earn and get started. Let me reintroduce you. We're talking to Joe Salcihai. He's not only my good friend and collaborator on Earn and Invest, but the co-creator and co-host of the wildly popular Stacking Benjamins podcast. And Christine Benz is the director of personal finance at Morningstar. And her most recent article on Morningstar.com is titled, When It Comes to Retirement Spending, Flexibility Pays. Christine, we've been talking about these different flexibility strategies. Let's look at strategy number three in your article, This was developed by Jonathan Gaetan and William Klinger and is called the guardrail strategy. Talk to me about what that means. I know that in a sense, we're going to target withdrawals to how you're doing with your current portfolio performance, but how does that specifically happen? What are those calculations we look at? Yeah. And I will say that this is my favorite of the variable withdrawal strategies that we uh, looked at because it's kind of a refinement on the RMD type strategy that we just talked about. So it is taking into account how the portfolio performs on an ongoing basis. So you're revisiting your portfolio performance, but you are putting guardrails around how low your withdrawals can go in a bad year and how high they can go in a good year. So I just find it to be a really elegant solution. Um, when I talk to financial advisors who I respect, most of them use some version of this type of strategy. It's a little bit complicated that I would say maybe is one knock against it that it can be difficult for, say, an individual investor to use. Um, but the idea is that you're retesting your percentage each year, your percentage withdrawal and just determining what your end withdrawal should be. Like the RMD strategy, it does give you raises when your performance has been good. The net effect of that is that you're consuming your portfolio on a year-by-year basis. There tend to be fewer leftovers. So for bequest-minded older adults, it might be less appropriate, but um, I really like this strategy quite a bit. Joe, this sounds a little bit more like what you kind of were talking about, right? This idea of maybe we should be yearly reassessing as opposed to trying to have a hard and fast rule that carries us the next 10, 20 years. Yeah, this is this is my favorite. And and to people that think that because, uh, Christine, I'd, I agree, setting this up may be more complicated and may seem more complicated. But I also feel like it's a little like riding a bike. Like, you know what? If you plan to be retired for a long time, you set this up at the beginning, you learn how it works. And then when you do it in year two, it's easier, year three, year four. Like it gets easier because it's it's the plan that you're using. Uh, the, the other thing that I like is that you can also modify this strategy. You know, when it comes to bequests, you can make it these, these guardrails a little more artificial. If somebody's goal is to give away X amount of their portfolio, make sure they have whatever 
amount left and they're able to do that, we can set those minimums and those maximums at different levels to still achieve that goal and make sure that they live the life that they want to at that time. So I I like it mostly because of the fact that you're re-examining it. I think that I think that retirement planning is important enough, just like your job. You know, you worry about getting the next raise. You worry about where your money's going to come from next year during your working years. Your portfolio becomes that job. And to spend just a little bit of time revisiting this every year and making sure that these guardrails are going to work for you still is a is a great use of time. Yeah, I would also say, you know, there are variations on this guardrails idea. So Derek Tharp, who is a researcher at Kitsis.com, he's also a financial advisor and a professor of financial planning. He makes the point that the guardrail should be more around probability of success. Um, So for our base case and all of this research, we assume that the retiree is targeting a 90% probability of success, which means that over a 30-year horizon, we want the retiree to have a 90% chance of not running out of funds. But his point is that it's actually that probability is the thing that we should be retesting every year and using that to decide whether to make adjustments to portfolio withdrawals. His point is, you know, if if we're saying that we're embarking on retirement and we want to take uh to figure out how much we can take without running out of money and we'll never look back on that initial withdrawal percentage. His point is like, of course you'd want to be conservative. You'd want yeah. you'd want 90% or 100% yeah. probability of success. But if you're willing to make those course corrections as the years go by, that that allows for a higher starting withdrawal amount. Yeah, it's an interesting idea, right? So what we're kind of saying here is that if you're willing to be flexible, uh, you don't necessarily need to be as conservative. I mean, this is what I'm really drawing out of this conversation. Exactly. Is kind of pull it further. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that is, is precisely what, what, what I like about it. I feel like we get locked into these ideas that 20 years later, 30 years later, we're still adhering to. And the, the, the ability to be a little more nimble with our planning, I think, I think there's a key here. There are people that think they need to be nimble with their assets. And I think that's a mistake. I think that moving when when equities aren't doing well, and so you're moving to try to capture what's hot now is a huge mistake. But being more nimble with your planning around, here's what happened last year. How am I going to plan differently to fill in these gaps or to take advantage of these opportunities? I think that's where that's where the key is. And I love it. So flexibility strategy four is withdraw 10% less after annual portfolio loss. And flexibility strategy five is the inflation haircut, this idea of subtracting 1% from inflation every year and taking a little bit less or, you know, adjusting a little bit less for inflation, as opposed to talking about those more, because it sounds like the guardrail strategy, maybe a mix of the RMD strategy is, is kind of all of our favorites. Let's get to some more burning questions. Christine, you know that I started off as part of the Financial Independence Retire Early community. The Retire Early community specifically is looking at withdrawal periods, maybe longer than the 30 years. Talk about how maybe younger people can bring some of this flexibility in, given the fact that they could live more than 30 years, maybe 40, maybe even some of these people who are talking about retiring in their 30s, living another 50 years. Yeah, I, you know, the preeminent person on this is Karsten Jeske, and uh, his research, I think, has been so important in terms of trying to help people with longer time horizons. So in all of our research, we model out a 30-year time horizon. We're kind of thinking about traditional aged retirees, people retiring in their mid-60s, planning till, till age 95. Well, of course, if you are planning for a longer time horizon than 30 years, you need to be more conservative. Um, but I really love the work that Karsten has done around the role of valuations in all of this, market valuations, what what stock valuations are like, what bond yields are like. And we factored that into our research somewhat as well, and that we're using our team's forward-looking expectation 
for the stock and bond market over the next 30 years. But I love what what Karsten has done in terms of an incorporating valuation and the bottom line in his research is, and I hope I'm not mischaracterizing it, but um, when your portfolio balance is lofty, when your portfolio has performed really well, that argues for you taking a smaller percentage of your portfolio, but that may be perfectly agreeable because it's a smaller percentage of a larger pool, right? Um, but I would urge people to check out his uh, website. I think it's called Earn Retire Now, um, but he's got some great research and has done such a deep dive on this topic. Yeah, it's Early Retire Now. That's Kirsten Jaffe. Okay. Yeah. Um, Joe, you know, one thing we didn't really talk about, we've been talking about flexibility here, but the one thing we haven't really discussed is this idea of actually making more money. Do you think that plays a role in some of this planning? I mean, we kind of have this rigid idea of what retirement looks like, and and maybe that doesn't really fit nowadays. Well, uh, studies show Wes Moss in his, in his uh, newish book about what the happiest retirees know talks about how the 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 average very happy retiree has has between three and five hobbies that they do things they do and if some of those earn a little money i mean how 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 great is that but i don't think it's about making money as much as it is about having more life and i think that uh if if you are making more money using that to fill in gaps between the amount that you have and the amount you need can be important. It can also uh, help keep you active. So I don't think I don't think there's any issue there. But I think it should always start with the end in mind. I mean, if you don't want to work and you're working, that's going to make your retirement stink. But if your goal, like mine, is to be podcasting when you die, like the moment you die, <laughs> then because that'll be huge for ratings, right? Uh, if 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 your goal is that, then making money while you're doing it, th then that's fantastic. But if you are making money, it's not about just making the money; it's about the difference between what you spend and what you make, and then capturing that to fill in fill in the gaps that you have. I love everything Joe just said. Uh, and totally agree that, you know, the physical activity, relationships, doing something that maybe has brings some purpose into your life, all of those things are so amazing. I get worried when I'm talking to older adults who say, well, my plan is just to keep working because the finances don't really add up. I can, the only way I can, you know, continue is to, to continue in my job that as Mark Miller, who's a Morningstar contributor says, that is a worthy aspiration. It is by no means a plan. So, well, that and and Christine, if I can jump in there, all the yeah. data shows what there's a huge percentage of people. I wish I had the number. If I knew we were going here, I would have. But there's a big number of people who retire every year, not because that was the plan, but because they had to, either themselves or a family member truly forced them into some sort of retirement. So often. Retirement doesn't happen the way we thought it was going to anyway. Exactly. In fact, there's some research uh, I think that Pew did a few years ago, and I think I'll always have this slide in my presentations, but it looks at the disconnect between when people thought they would re retire. So they surveyed pre-retirees about when they thought they would retire and when they and then followed up with the same people on when they actually did retire. You see a big disconnect. So many people saying that they'll continue working in sort of that 70 to 79 year age band and many fewer people than forecast that they would work that long were able to do so. So all you can infer from that is that there are things that get in that in the way. So it might be the individual's own health, spousal health, parental health, whatever, a job that becomes physically untenable, what whatever the case might be. And I think an important part of this argument that we're talking uh, talking around a little bit is Another place where you have to be flexibility is your feelings are going to change. I'm 55 years old now. I feel a lot different than I did when I was 45, but which was different than I felt when I was 25. And my goals, my aspirations changed. And as I see my friends around me begin to exit the workforce, and my plan has always been to keep doing what I do because I love it. I find myself re-examining that far more often the last couple of years as all of my social network is, is beginning to transition. Um, I find myself looking at that and going, is that still the plan? Is that really what I want? Right. And for people with spouses, 
they need to be mindful of that too. I think that, um, you know, one spouse may want to continue working longer, but if the first spouse hangs it up and you, you know, you love your spouse, you want to spend more time with him or her doing whatever is, is your, your shared pursuit. So that's a, a complicating factor too. We've talked, Doc G, a lot about flexibility of how we take our income. One area we haven't talked about, which really I get excited about, Paul Merriman introduced this to me and I love it. He and his spouse are flexible about their bucket list. Like a lot of people, they set up all the things that they want to do. And in years that the financial markets reward them with these excess returns, that's when they go to the African safari. That's when they go to Europe. That's when they do the big, expensive, lavish stuff. And then he said on the down years, that's when they they peel off the things. He lives in the Pacific Northwest that are much closer to home. So he's got this bucket list, but he's flexible about how he spends his excess money that he really wants to. I find that to be super powerful in a place where we could we could really do better optimizing our spending and correlating it with how the markets do um, uh, and end up with a pretty, pretty great life. Yeah, I love that. And I love Paul Merriman. I hate bucket lists, but that's a separate <laughs> podcast. <laughs> well, Christine, you can't just leave it hanging there. Why do you hate bucket lists? Oh, mainly because I feel like I, I'm all about micro joys. I call them like Find things that give you a high quality of life day in, day out. I mean, for me, my reliable ones are like cooking for my husband and family and friends, walking as much as I can outside and reading books. And those are things that I know like every day that's in my toolkit. And uh, yes, I love to travel and do the big things too, but I just feel like for a happier, steadier life, find your micro joys and do them every day. Well, Joe and Christine, I wanted to thank you for coming on today. As I think about this conversation, you know, goes back to the fact that people who are thinking about these things, we're really planners and we like hard and fast rules because we think those rules will protect us. But what it actually sounds like is it's flexibility that protects us. It's reading the market. It's reading your own investments and most importantly, reading your own life goals and pursuits every year and then adjust accordingly. You can't do that on a hard and fast safe withdrawal rate, but you certainly can with some of these strategies we talked about today, especially the guardrail strategy, which I think fits into a lot of our conversation. I want to end this episode the way in every episode by asking you what's up next in your life and where people can find you. Christine, please tell us what is coming up on Morningstar in your column and with the podcast and how can we reach out to you? Oh, thank you so much for that. So I'm on Morningstar.com doing articles and videos all the time, doing work on retirement specifically, along with my colleagues where we're doing research. We'll be revisiting this safe withdrawal rate research every year, probably in the fourth quarter this year. And we'll be trying to incorporate some new elements. So one thing that's been on the docket for a few years now is to incorporate annuities into the discussion to look at how they may change this starting safe withdrawal amount and also to take a look at mortgages because we know that um, reverse mortgages, we know that many older adults do die with substantial home equity in a lot of ways, especially for people with tighter plans, that's suboptimal. So we'll be planning to to incorporate some of those non-portfolio factors into our into our research in the future. In terms of the podcast, Jeff Patak and I do a weekly interview podcast. You've both been on it. And uh, we just continue to interview great thought leaders in the investing, personal finance and retirement planning space. So it's a kind of a fun little side project for the two of us where we get to spend time with with people like you too. And Joe, tell us what is happening on the Stacking Benjamin show, the greatest money show on earth. What's coming up? We call it that because intentionally we make it a circus to prove to you that this can be fun, that you you can do it, that um, and that success is around just right around the corner. Man, we've curated. You know, when it comes to your career and leadership, we have an interview coming up with Oscar Munoz, who's the former CEO of uh, United Airlines, 
did a heck of a turnaround story there. Well, at the same time in his personal life, suffering a major heart attack. And so we talked to him about not just his personal life, but the the role of listening, um, which is really important if you're a leader. And he's such a charismatic guy. We talked to uh, Mignon Francois, who is a name a lot of people might not know. Uh, she has a wonderful uh, uh company called the cupcake collection. She was down to her last $5 and no power when her neighbor brought her this 600 cupcake order and she freaked out because she didn't know how she'd fill it. By the end of the week, she turned that $5 into $60. Then a couple of weeks later, that 60 into 600. And as she says, she's still flipping that same $5 to continue to expand her reach. So a uh, powerful and a guy, by the way, who runs marathons, weighs uh, 300 pounds and runs marathons. And people told him that he could not do it. And he said, nope, I think I can. And he's developed this huge Instagram following to show you that you can do whatever the heck you want. So those are just a few of our stories coming up. They all sound exciting. And I had the privilege of meeting Mignon and her story and her book made from scratch are truly inspiring and quite interesting. Thank you both Joe and Christine for coming on the show. Thank you. That's a wrap. Earn and Invest is now part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. Is the safe withdrawal rate debate ridiculous. It's the question that I pose in this episode, and Christine Benz and Joe Salcihai and I had a fairly deep discussion about the importance of the 4% rule of thumb and whether we should stick to a specific safe withdrawal rate, 4% inflation adjusted every year, or whether we could have a variable withdrawal rate using some guardrails, some ways of modifying every year our plan such that maybe our withdrawal rates could be higher in the first place. Maybe 4% is just too low. The point being here is that we as conservative people who have been planning out our finances for years and want to make sure we don't run out of money during retirement, maybe we tend to overplan. And I don't think that's a flaw of character. I think that's who we are, the kind of people who understand what a safe withdrawal rate is, who go to accountants and financial planners and really spend a lot of time mapping out what their retirement will look like and how much money they'll have. We all tend to be conservative by nature. And therefore, being conservative, a lot of us end up one day dying with lots of money in the bank, which I guess is great uh, because we can give that to charities or leave it to our children and their and hopefully our grandchildren and maybe even great-grandchildren. But I wonder if we could enjoy ourselves more today, if we could spend a little more freely, especially when we're getting to that point where we are financially sound, maybe life would be a little better. So Christine had suggested in her article all sorts of different mechanisms to be more variable with your safe withdrawal rate to ultimately have a higher safe withdrawal rate over time. The problem with that is our conservative nature means that we always leave extra space for error. For me, the solution actually couldn't be more simple, and it goes the exact opposite direction. As opposed to worrying about how much I withdraw... Often I just figure I'm going to do something that's going to make a little money, something I enjoy doing, something that doesn't take away from my sense of purpose and identity, something that I would do even if I wasn't being paid for it. But if I do make a little money doing this, I don't really have to worry about safe withdrawal rates too much because of the income, right? So once you add in a little income, even if you're only making 10 or 20% what you would in a full-time job, that income is going to delay your spending from your portfolio, and it's going to allow you not to persistently worry about your safe withdrawal rate. Does that mean that you shouldn't be paying attention year to year what's happening to your investments and your spending? No, of course not. You should be able to do those things, but I love the spending buffer allowed by making a little bit of extra income. And in good years, when you make extra income and your investments also do well, that's a perfect time to take that extra trip, to fly first class, to book the expensive hotel, 
that's a great time to go out to that restaurant you've always wanted to go to, but never felt like you had the cash handy. To me, this is a much better solution than figuring out guardrails for your safe withdrawal rate. I I think that's great too. Uh, But for me, being conservative as I am, I'm always going to be extra careful. So I would much rather make a little money, especially because there's so many ways out there you can make money doing things you like. For me, maybe that's podcasting or that's writing. Or in my case, I'm lucky enough to really enjoy my hospice work. So I can do it very, very part-time and yet still make some money doing that. I don't know what that looks like in your life. For you, that might be working at Walmart as a greeter, or it might be working in a flower shop, or maybe you want to work in the local brewery and help them make beer. I don't know what speaks to your soul, but I assume that there's something that you can do where you also make a little money, and it's probably good for you. It's probably good for you to have a weekly schedule. It's probably good for you to have some things that you do regularly, where you're publicly meeting people and involved with coworkers and those kind of things. And look, if you are nomadic, there's so many ways you can virtually and digitally make money nowadays. I just see it as a win-win, and I don't see it as particularly stressful. I guess there's some people who are like, I want to be retired, and once I'm retired, I never want to work a moment again. But that really isn't most of us. Most of us could probably find something we enjoy doing, make a little money doing it, And that would make our retirement plans rock solid. Because ultimately the goal is not to die with zero and the goal is not to die with too much. The goal is to live your life and not spend a lot of time worrying about these things. The goal is to have less anxiety and stress and use your time and energy to pursue things you want to do. So the choice is yours. Typical, straightforward, safe withdrawal rate of 4%, or use the guardrail or RMD strategy in order to shake it up a little bit and adapt to your environment, or do like me, make a little money here and there, doing something you love, and hopefully never worry about retirement again. Awesome. As you guys know, I leave things running just for a few minutes as we chat afterwards. Um, Yeah, I love that conversation. I mean, I I think flexibility is something that um, a lot of us aren't good at. Yeah. I I love it, as you know. (laughs) I love it. You know, I had to, you know, I had to throw in the, for one of the first questions I asked, had to ask Joe about was rules of thumb because it gets him riled up every time. I know I'm going to have like a a deeper conversation. All I have to do is throw that at Joe and he just picks off. So let's get Joe's. I love rules of thumb. Oh, oh, Christine, come on. Come on. I've tried, Christine. I've tried to argue with him. So I've given him the same argument you gave, which is like people need a starting place to then build flexibility in. And no, 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 it doesn't work with you. Mine is my, well, mine is just my counterpoint that, uh, you know, my belief will always be that you're smart enough to do the real plan and the real plan is stickier. So I think I'm then logically forced into a corner where I need to hate rules of thumb (laughs) because they're the enemy of what I truly believe is the answer. I get it. I think, you know, it's not either or, right? Um, And the thing that's compelling to me is when you look at the whole research on financial education and what sticks, most of it does not stick. What does stick is some of those rules of thumb. That if people walk away and say, those are the things that they retain. Most of the knowledge that they pick up DKs, but they- That's so interesting because I've found it to be the opposite. Like when when we have it specific to you and the goal, it sticks, but if I'm, you know, rolling out the rule of thumb, it, it doesn't. But, but you know, it's funny on something that we can definitely agree on bucket list. And I wasn't going to prolong that conversation. <laughs> I also agree, you know, but, but from a different perspective, I just got back from 18 days in Spain and, um, and that was a huge trip for us. But I, but I realized that often on these trips, if you're not careful, you find yourself just planning the next thing. And you're spending your whole time not being present, doing the thing that you said you wanted to do and instead planning the next one. And I actually have a friend who's like that, where she 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 has so much FOMO that we've traveled with her before and it it's difficult to travel with her mm-hmm. because she wants to cram 
every single thing it's painful in uh, in in the day. So we see all the stuff and we check the boxes and we hate it all. Yeah. You know? So, uh, so for me, I think bucket list, if you're not careful, can also turn into just this list building that for what? Right. Right. I know. I think, you, you know, what you have to do is like go deeper when you go, when you, at least I, I like that. Yeah. Like, and just assume I'll get back there. Yes. Like, don't try to just, cause I think, especially when you're you know, I don't know. I found this when I was younger where I'd be like, gotta, but now I'm just like, yeah, I'll go back. If I like it, I'll go back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My the first, list, go ahead. Well, just the first time we went to Paris, uh, uh, I said, wow, we're going to France. We can do all these things all over France. She's like, no, we're just staying in Paris. Yeah. We're going to be, we're going to be there for, for nine days. She's like, let's get to know Paris. And now Paris is my favorite city because the that. only, the only trip we did was out to Versailles. But besides that, we, 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 we drew this, we, we changed into quarters and spent a quarter of our time in each quarter of the city and really got to, oh my goodness, it was so fun. I love that. I just found that for me, and this is, I think my personality, my bucket list never have to do with like places or adventures. Mm -hmm. It's more kind of lifetime goals, like mm -hmm. things I want to accomplish or things I want to do, but usually it doesn't have to do with geography. Yeah. Um, well, my bucket list was to be on here today with both of you. So <laughs> there you go. That's it. We got to end this right here now. It's accomplished. <laughs> it feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday. So listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.